BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is Bill Press and Friends on the District Productive Network. I got to say up front, the briefing, I tweeted this out. Maybe you got, those of you who follow us on Twitter saw it yesterday. We expected, after Sean Spicer's first appearance in the press room on Saturday, we expected fireworks yesterday, that it was going to be as contentious as hell. And it was not. I think they realized they had gone way overboard on Saturday, uh, basically calling the media liars for saying that uh, there were not as many people at Donald Trump's inauguration as there had been at President Obama's first inauguration in 2009. Yesterday, Sean Sp- the room was packed. There were as many people in the briefing room yesterday as there were for President Obama's last news conference. It's crazy. Crazy. Uh, just the curiosity about what it was going to be like with, with uh, Sean Spicer. Um, and uh, he came in, came in with a smile on his face, a little nervous, uh, but a totally different tone. And in some ways, he, he made he, – he, he made some changes that a lot of us in the press room have talked about for a long time. Uh, he didn't start off by calling on the big feet in the front row. He didn't call on AP first and, and then go to CBS and then Fox and then CNN and then, you know, all the networks. No, no, no. He actually started, which was a message in itself, by going to the back of the room, calling on the New York Post. Of course, the New York Post is a Trump-friendly paper, but it was somebody in the back of the room. Then he went to the Christian Broadcasting Network or whatever it is. Um, but he, he made this point that, okay, everybody's equal in this room, basically. Everybody gets a turn. We're not, or we don't, we're not necessarily going to start. When I first went there with Robert Gibbs, he would start in the front row and go down everybody in the front row. Mm-hmm. And then maybe he would make it to two people in the second row, and that would be the entire hour. Yeah. And now Josh Ernest did a lot better than Jay Carney, a little bit better. Josh Ernest a lot better than that. But Sean Spice yesterday just kind of. He blew the protocol wide open on it. He also stayed there an hour and a half, which I think is the longest briefing I've ever been to. And he took, by my count, 42 questions, which, again, is a record. That's a lot. Not that he said a lot. His answers were crisp. One thing also he did, which I, a lot of us have said the press secretary should do, is if somebody asks the same question somebody else asked, he said, uh, ask and answer, basically. Yeah, I've already answered that question and then moved on to the, ne- to the next person. Which, which does move things along. At the same time, he said some things which were, were still pretty outrageous, I believe. Jonathan Carl gets him, asks him the question about, so how do you approach this podium? Do you think your job is to tell the truth? Is it your intention to always tell the truth from that podium, and will you pledge never to knowingly say something that is not factual? It is. It's an honor to do this, and... Uh, Yes, I believe that we have to be honest with the American people. Uh, okay. Uh, well, how about the facts, Sean? How about the facts? I believe that we have to be honest with the American people. I think sometimes we can disagree with the facts. Nope. That, that <clears throat> phrase, lost me. 
No, that phrase you struck me. me, and I'm still trying to figure out what it means. Sometimes we could disagree with the fact. No, no, no. We the facts are the facts. Maybe I'm just not getting this, but there's there's this feeling in the Trump White House, right? Still, that there are facts, and then there are other facts, and we can disagree about the fact, and and that there are in fact alternative facts. No, they're not. The facts are the facts. The size, you can disagree about the measurement, maybe, by which you estimate the crowd or something. But the facts are there are only so many people there. That's a fact. The Patriots are gone in the Super Bowl. That's a fact. There were more people on the mall for Barack Obama's inauguration than for Donald Trump's. That's a fact. You can't disagree with that fact. That's a fact. We just had a whole election where we were debating reality. We were debating what was right in front of our very eyes, and we were being gaslighted and told that what we were looking at was not true. And uh, yes, he had a nicer tone yesterday, and yes, he treated the press uh, nicer than he had earlier. But if that's the guiding philosophy of him as press secretary, you can't believe a word that comes out of his mouth. And then we saw that they continued uh, in several areas to distort the facts, or basically, can I say it, to lie. Okay? Yeah, it's a lie. Donald Trump <laughs> telling congressional leaders last night that he would have won the popular vote if only 4 million illegal, uh, undocumented Ameri workers, people, whatever, in this country. I don't know the proper phrase anymore to use. Illegal votes. He illegal, just said that, illegal votes. Yeah. If, they, if, not, if, if, if 4 million illegal votes had not been cast. No, wrong. Absolutely not. It's been checked. It's been checked. Did not happen. It's a lie. Okay. Then they insist. Uh, so Sean Spicer, but back on the size of the crowd at the inauguration, Sean Spicer insists, well, it's the largest crowd ever. I think he says, if you count, here it is, if you count everybody. If you're asking me a question about my integrity, I have a right to say if you add up the, the network streaming numbers, Facebook, YouTube, all of the various live streamings that, that we have information on so far, I don't think there's any question it was that, that it was the largest watched inauguration ever. Well, so immediately it changed. Now, by the way, you can't measure that. No, Who it's, knows? A re, it's a redefinition of the question. Right. I mean, what the what the New York Times showed and that's what they got all so upset about. And the cable TV showed the same thing was a photograph taken from the top of the Washington Monument by the National Park Service at roughly noon on Barack Obama's inauguration day in 2009, and this very same scene on Donald Trump's inauguration, January 20, 2017. And there were markedly, maybe half, only half as many people there for Donald Trump as there were for, for Barack Obama. You cannot dispute that. That is a fact. And that's what people were talking about, how many people turned out on the mall. Now, they have redefined it to say, no. It was people on the mall. It was people watching television. It was people watching on their tablets. It was people watching on their iPhone. How can you measure that? You can't. I, I don't want to spend right. all day. Oh, you're right. I don't want to spend all day litigating the crowd size, right? But this is important because if he'll, they'll lie about this, what won't they lie about? And he came out on Saturday. It was not about who watched on TV and who was there. No. It was it – was, 
specifically on the crowd size on the ground. He showed slides. He showed photos. He was making the point that the people on the ground weren't being accounted for. He's making it up. He's redefining what he was was saying. No, he was talking about that, and Donald Trump was talking about that, and he said, I looked out there, and they went all the way back to the Washington Monument. No, they didn't. Right. No, they didn't. So the same lie, the same, uh, you know, easy jump into a lie occurred uh, when they're talking about the briefing at the CIA. The White House, the, the White House claimed that he was received as a hero at the CIA, that, the, that he had no, never had a rift with the CIA, and the media invented the rift with the CIA. No, we didn't. It was Donald Trump who accused the CIA of playing politics and playing favorites of favoring Hillary Clinton over him and undermining his campaign by talking about Russian hacking in the election. And it was Donald Trump who said, famously, that this is the way they do things in Nazi Germany. Comparing the CIA to Nazi Germany. We didn't say that. Nope. We reported that Donald Trump said that. So now they say, no, the media invented that rift and that when Donald Trump went to the CIA, he was actually greeted as, um, as a hero, as I said, that there were, they said, there were hundreds of people who, who could not get in because that, that wanted to get there, they couldn't get in, that there were long lines trying to get in, and that the CIA workers there were cheering Donald Trump when he was attacking the media and talking about what a great crowd he had at his inauguration. CIA officials yesterday said, that's not true, that they sent out about 4,000 email invitations 400 accepted. There were only. There were no lines to get in. There was no waiting list. That the people cheering were people that Donald Trump brought with him. Just like uh, at his uh, first press conference as a president-elect at Trump Tower. Uh, And that, in fact... Uh, he might have hurt his relations with the CIA by giving a political campaign speech in front of the sacred wall of heroes there at the uh, at the CIA. So, and that's something that Nazi Germany would have done and did do. I think it's a disgrace. There you yeah. go. Right. There you go. So, uh, 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 sadly, uh, I think we see we don't see any. Um, willingness on the part of this administration to to tell the truth. And I think we're just going to have a a continuing cascade of lies uh, from the press secretary and from the president himself. And it's the job of the media to tell the truth and to call them out on it. And if they don't like it, tough. How do you think uh, the press corps, because there were a couple moments that Sean Spicer said some things that were groanable at best. Uh, he had a question about the unemployment rate, and he sort of seemed to imply that there's no way of knowing what the unemployment rate is. He wouldn't put a definition on it. Um, the the CIA crowd, uh, he was talking about that and sort of fudged the numbers on that a little bit. He talked all extensively, whining about how their feelings got hurt by the media and all that. And my takeaway was I don't think anybody in the room really pushed Spicer on those things in particular. No, How do you I think, think they did? No, I think uh, generally that the White House press corps gave him a pass yesterday yeah. for his first day 
uh, and they were just sort of they were just sort of feeling him out. But just one final point before we move on. By the way, uh, Christina Wilkie covers the White House for Huffington Post. Uh, she joins us in just a minute here uh, in studio. But the whining about oh, we get all this criticism, and you know it just gets so tiring because everything we do, then some people are critical of it, and you know, and and it's been going on ever since Donald Trump announced for president, and people have been critical of him. Well, you know what? Tough. Tough, you know. <laughs> yeah. Try being a radio talk show host, right? If you can't stand criticism, if you can't stand any criticism, it comes. You're in the wrong job, Donald Trump, right? <laughs> and president. you're in the wrong job, Sean Spencer. Get out of politics. Certainly get out of the White House. Harry Truman said it best, right? If you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The kitchen comes with the heat. Okay. Yeah. You step into the kitchen, you're going to get burned. You're going to get. It's just and. You know, the best thing to do is ignore it. Yeah. But Donald Trump can't ignore it. Uh, coming out of the first weekend and the first official workday, they called it, of the Trump administration, many, most questions swirling about the relationship between the Trump White House and the media. Christina Wilkie is a White House reporter for the Huffington Post and uh, joins us in studio. Hi, Christina. Good morning. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. Well, uh, it was um, sort of back-to-back Saturday and then Monday with Sean Spicer, taking a first look at Sean Spicer. Uh, let's start with Saturday. That was a pretty rocky start, wasn't it? Well, God, Saturday was a rocky start. Saturday was a rocky day. All I mean, the for the entire administration, across the boards. And we were wondering, as you know, on Saturday, Sean Spicer came out and 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 told us that no one had ever, no, you know, the, the, his, Trump's inauguration had been the largest in the history of humanity. And just, period. 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 And and these were easily disprovable facts, or, you know, statements, which, which you always have to scratch your head at. You know, it's one thing to fudge at the numbers a little and then have equivocate about what's, what it might really be. But these were things you could that you could visually disprove. But it, it certainly sounded as though he'd been given these talking points. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Someone, and he didn't make this up. This was what he was probably instructed to go and say. But yeah, it reflected really badly on the administration. It reflected very badly on him. And, and I think it reminded us, um, certainly as reporters, but probably also as citizens, that just about everything coming out of this White House right now, you've got to check yourself. You've got to look at the at the original document, at the photograph, at the video. I was saying the, the other day, you know, this incoming administration, which has been telling lies all throughout the campaign, like lying is not new to them. Everybody's freaking out about the alternative facts statement, but I think that's pretty much been their guiding philosophy for the last couple of years. But this could very well be the the end of you know access reporting. Period. (laughs) Thank you, Jamie. (laughs) The access reporting where, you know, you work your source, you get into the White House, you're good, you know, you make a great connection and they feed you things here and there. Like, I don't think that the Trump administration is ever going to be that organized, I guess, to where they have a long term plan. They slowly leak things out to the press. I think if you want the news, you're going to have to go find it. Yes. There's not going to be given to you. Speaking of finding it. Okay. They did. Um, they did yesterday say, "Well, the president uh, has signed a letter, yeah, and he has resigned from all of his businesses." 
now, someone at the briefing yesterday asked if they're going to release that document. We never got an answer to that. No. Have we seen it, and did he, in fact, do what they said he did? What we saw was a little sliver that he released to CNN. Um, it was two sentences that said, I, Donald Trump, hereby resign from the following companies, Exhibit A, effective immediately, signed Donald Trump. What we didn't see was who the letter was addressed to. Because remember, this is his own company. He's the boss. So he, him resigning from his own company is... He's writing a letter to himself? Basically, yeah. <laughs> And and it was the latest, and then and we never saw the list of companies. Um, we have yet to see it. Oh, uh, exhibit, we did not see. No, I've a. asked for it. Um, so I will. I'll I guess update. there are dozens and dozens of 400 companies. Four hundred right? plus. Whoa. Yeah, corporate right. entities and companies. Yeah. Um, but but the more important point is that even so, firstly, yes, we've got to see in black and white what what he's saying and and what the all the names of the companies are and keep track of those. But we also Resigning from his companies is something we always knew he was going to do. Being president is a full-time job. So the fact that he said he's not going to fully manage his companies, it's very different, mind you, from divesting his interest. So even though he's not you know, working there full-time, he's still keeping all of those interests, and that's what, you know, that's what we're worried is going to be driving his decisions as president. Well, th- that gets to two questions. One is the famous emoluments clause. We've we've all gotten so right, uh, uh, right? Yeah. used to that uh, word. We're I such never, con- yeah, constitutional nerds. Word yeah. I never heard of until <laughs> Donald Trump, uh, and, and that is that you can't take any it can't take any money from any foreign government. Yes, right? money or gifts or, or anything right. compensation. Yeah, and with his businesses, there's a lot of foreign money flowing there in. Is. So, and and it's foreign. It's foreign government money is what it technically says. So from a foreign okay. state. All right. Um, so. How has he protected himself against, or has he, against the emoluments clause? He has not. Uh, well, he has, he has promised in his press conference that the money from his hotels only, from foreign governments staying there, so a group of, say, you know, Turkish diplomats, um, the Turkish state pays stay for them to at stay. at the Trump International he Hotel. He has said that he will give the profits, so not the revenues, mind you, the profits, whatever, after he takes his cut, <laughs> Whatever is left over will go, he will return to the U.S. Treasury. Well, and get this, the average profit margin for a luxury resort is 6 to 10%. Yeah. So what we're talking (laughs) about is Donald Trump keeps 90 cents of every dollar, (laughs) his company does, to run, hotels run on really slim margins. They've got to always pay for empty rooms. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the rooms that are full have to pay for the empty ones. So it's a really tight business. But so he's saying that once he takes his 90%, you know, whatever's left over will go back to the U.S. Treasury. Right. But, but that doesn't solve anything. All right. But this, this also begs the question about the lease for the hotel, this hotel in Washington, D.C., in the first place, because the, as we've talked about here, the, 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 the standard lease for the General Services Administration says that you, no federal employee, no, federal, no one who works for the federal government can hold a lease leasing any federal property. Right. Okay. That he's in direct violation of of the law in that case. Yes. You can't be both so, the landlord and the tenant. Okay. That's a, that's that's the way to say it. 
What? So what's the G- GSA? Do we know? General Services Administration going to do about that? Have they decided yet? They are under pressure. They have not formally announced um, any plan, but they got a letter from Democrats in Congress yesterday um, demanding that that this be addressed and calling for an investigation. Um, the, the GSA is in a very tough spot. Uh, I think what they would love um, is for Trump to actually divest himself so he's no longer a, a, par, a share partner in this hotel project and are to actually transfer the interest, not just, you know, the, the, the value, not just a little bit of the paperwork to his children, and then there wouldn't be a problem. But that is what he's he so far... He refuses to do that. He won't do it. And he's doing all these other charades and smoke and mirrors, which is really what the resignation letter amounts to, to make to, to cause us to look in the... They're red herrings. Look over here. I resigned from all my companies. Um, but the GSA question is the, the one that I think most legal experts think is going to be the toughest for him to get around. And the law is incredibly plain. Um, Democrats are going to keep pushing on this. And um, I, I don't see a way out. Can I, ask right. you a quick, can I ask you a quick question? How how much of the oversight on the, the, the president is sort of just tradition, right? Like, we've always had, for the most part, like, well-established right. career politicians right. who it's sort of like, well, they would never do this. They would never use the presidency to cash in on the uh, uh, on the job. Is that just sort of like tradition, or is there some real oversight for that? There is effectively not real oversight for the cashing in for the for the conflicts of interest. Oh, good. Stuff. Oh, great. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, but, but every president before, or just every president in the modern age, has run for an, a, some office before. Right. So you know, so he's been vetted. He's been in an, in a previous campaign, and you typically. You know, if you have still have these big business attachments and ethical questions, you don't get elected to mm-hmm. the Senate, the governorship, whatever is the step before president. So this is it's unprecedented to have somebody who's never run for public office, you know, hit the grand slam. Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for The Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Senator Jeff Merkley, Democrat from Oregon, joining us uh, in studio. Uh, it's good to have you back, Senator. Thank, Thank you. you so much yes, for coming. Very good in. to be with you. Uh, I wasn't going to start there, but Peter mentioned some of the president's nominees. A couple of them um, thought they might have a might be some difficulty getting them confirmed. Uh, let's start with the Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson. Have you decided how you're going to vote? Yes. You know, I voted against him in, in committee, and I, I came out pretty early and, and said that I'd be voting against him. After his testimony, it's clear he's unsuited for the role of leading United States foreign policy. He came into committee. He spoke very much as an oil executive. And, and just to give you some examples, when, and this, some of these examples came from Marco Rubio. But he, he was asked about Duterte's extrajudicial killings in the Philippines. He didn't say this is contrary to U.S. principles. He said, I just need a little more information about that. 
I asked him about uh, Exxon's role in taking its royalties on oil in Equatorial Guinea and putting them in the bank account of the dictator for, for life. Uh, and uh, how that ends, feeds the corruption and, and uh, prevents the people from getting services in that country. And he said, well, we didn't, we didn't get prosecuted for it, mm. and so on and so forth. He was asked about the barrel bombing in Aleppo, uh, had no moral outrage over it. This is a very close friend of, of Putin. And to have a president who's a very close friend of Putin, and to have a secretary of state who's a very close friend, and who doesn't seem to think that there's much much that uh, should be done uh, using uh, sanctions. For example, Exxon bypassed the sanctions that we put on mm -hmm. Russia, not on Russia, on Iran, excuse me, uh, and uh, do, use a subsidiary to do that, to do business with, with, uh, with Iran. And when we put sanctions on Russia, uh, he proceeded to have Exxon lobby against those. And so on point after point after point, there is no moral compass. He spent his life extracting oil, doing every strategy he, he could uh, to uh, advance the profits of that, that company. But uh, that's a single dimension, not a multidimensional person who understands American principles, American leadership in the world. Plus, uh, no diplomatic experience uh, at all. Well, none whatsoever. I mean, it was pointed out he, he helped negotiate a lot of oil deals, mm -hmm. but that's very different than the, the complexity of diplomatic negotiations. Uh, how about Senator Jeff Sessions for Attorney General? Well, uh, Sessions, um, uh, it, I think, is going to not receive a lot of Democratic votes based on his past principles that re reflect uh, an enormous uh, uh, racial bias. Including not yours? Not mine. Yeah. Um, and... Um, I mean, he has a past that's really hard to ignore, doesn't when it comes to civil rights and voting rights in particular. Yes, and a lot of that past goes back back decades, but it's not a, a past where he's demonstrated that he's e evolved in in, uh, in a profound way. Some individuals uh, were in, in one place 30 years ago in a different place today, but he has had a very consistent life. The president yesterday um, signed a memo uh, ending... Uh, I guess any chance that the United States would uh, proceed with the TPP. Senator Bernie Sanders, whom you endorsed and I endorsed in the primary, uh, yesterday said this was a good first step. A very good thing. It was a t time to drive a, a stake through this agreement. And But let's understand this, that while on that issue... Uh, the president got it right, that that is an anti-worker strategy, the TPP. On every other way, he is siding with big, powerful special interests and hurting workers. Look at who he nominated for labor secretary, an individual, Andy Puzder, uh, who has specialized in grinding workers into the ground. Look what he's done with the, the health secretary, nominating someone who wants to take health care away from the middle class and our, and our seniors. Education secretary, someone who wants to tear down public education. You know, my dad was a mechanic. I grew up in a blue-collar community. I live in a blue-collar community today. My father said to me, son, the cool thing is we live in an America where if you go through the doors of that school and you work hard, you can do just about anything here in our, our nation. And that, I, I thought that was so cool because we yeah. didn't live on the affluent side of the tracks. Yeah, right. Uh, but that's, uh, but you know what's strange, Senator, is so many people voted 
that kind of a background, right, voted for Donald Trump because they believed his message. Well, his message was he's going to fight against Wall Street, he's going to help workers, and he's going to drain the swamp. And he's done the opposite on all three. Take the very first executive order he signed, which was to charge low-income families $500 more per year under FHA to buy a home. And why did he do that? because Wall Street doesn't like the competition from FHA on mortgages. So he hurt workers mm -hmm. and their home ownership opportunities to do a big favor to big banks. Back to TPP, is now, what happens now, I guess? So we're not gonna move forward with TPP, which is that on that one thing is a good move, but um, are, are there going to be new and better trade deals? Do, well, I think the focus and, and, now... And is that an area where Democrats perhaps can work with this administration? I think the focus now has to be on uh, reducing the, the enormous trade deficits with Mexico and China. They constitute 90% uh, of our trade deficit. And essentially, you can look at it like this. If we sent our athletes to an Olympics and our athletes had to run uphill while the competitors got to run downhill, we would lose almost all the time. And that's what we do with these agreements. We say, you can have full access to our market, Mexico, mm -hmm. while you pay a fraction of the minimum wage we pay, while you have a fraction of the environmental rules that we have, while you have a fraction of the enforcement. So of course we give a huge advantage to the manufacturer outside our borders. And people just need to understand, when you give a huge advantage to your competitor, your competitor wins. And when the company wins that's overseas, you lose the factory in America, you lose the supply chain, you lose the payroll being spent in the grocery store and the gas station, and you create downward pressure on all the rest of the workers. And that is what's been happening for the last four decades. Our American workers have been getting the short end of the stick. Virtually all the new income for four decades going to the top 10%. That's nine out of 10 Americans out in the cold. That drove the frustration that helped fuel, in part, the Bernie campaign and the Trump campaign. And unfortunately, the, uh, the, the, the Trump uh, won the general election. Eliza Collins covers Capitol, uh, covers the Congress, rather, well, Capitol Hill, Congress, Capitol Hill. for USA Today and joins us in the studio. Hi, Eliza. Nice to see you. Good to be back. I, I just, I want to come back to the Affordable Care Act here for a second. It just seems to me that the Republicans have have opened this can of worms and, you know, they, they, they don't know what to do with it now that they've got it, right? Okay, they've, right. they've, they've all passed this the budget resolutions that allow them to repeal the entire Affordable Care Act, and now they're realizing, oh my God, if we do that without right. some answer, right, 21, 22, whatever million Americans who have health insurance for the first time in their lives are suddenly going to be left high and dry. And how do we, what do we tell those people? And a lot of them live in red states, and a lot of them voted for Donald Trump. Right. Yes. Donald Trump realizes this is a problem. <laughs> Donald's like, Mitch McConnell doesn't seem to realize it. And he comes from K Kentucky, which are one of the most successful state exchanges. Right. Yeah. So I think it's easy to sit to bash it when President Obama was in office and sure. he vetoed every time. But now it's like, oh, we have to do something. And it's just it's harder to do than, than they thought. Yeah. 
Right. Or I don't know if, I mean, they probably thought it was hard, but it was easy to say, we're going to do it one day. Right. It, 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 Jeff Merkley, who was in right, right before you, had, right. had something really interesting about the whole push for repealing of Obamacare was just such a, a way to hurt Obama. Right? Like, they didn't, a lot of these people were just doing it purely because it was an idea from him. They didn't really take a moment to take a look and see the real benefits and whether or not their people in their districts were benefiting from it or, or whatever. Now that it, the threat of it being taken away is so real, there are a lot of people who are saying, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. This is actually not such a horrible thing. Well, yeah, and they fail to realize, as Senator Merkley pointed out, that in effect this was a Republican plan, which Barack Obama adopted from the state of Massachusetts, Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney, who got it from the American Heritage Foundation, uh, and and the reason the Republicans came up with this plan was because it kept the insurance companies in their role, the pharmaceutical companies in in their role, gave people a choice, right? Uh, and I mean, they have to buy insurance, but they could uh, they could sign up through a state exchange or a federal exchange, whatever. It was it was a Republican designed plan which if anybody else's name had been on it, they would have said, this is the answer. This is this is our answer to single payer. Well, it's the idea people are like, I like the Affordable Care Act. That works for me. I don't right. like that Obamacare. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But the other thing that's interesting is defunding Planned Parenthood being, say, they're saying they're going to attach that. And that, I'm curious to see how that goes because there are Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski saying, don't do that. We won't vote for that. And we just saw those marches this weekend, millions and millions of people. So I wonder if that would mess things now, up, Now, there's too. another aspect of the Affordable Care Act, which has received no attention at all, at least I haven't heard about, that you've uh, you've been writing about, which is the coverage for Native American yes. c- the community. It's called yeah. the Indian Health Care Improvement Act. And it's been around for decades. But in 2000, it lapsed kind of expired. And so they had to go back to Congress and every year, like, pitch themselves to get the budget. And so in 2010, they tacked it on to the Affordable Care Act. So it's separate, but it is what came as part of this big law. It's really uncontroversial. It's a bipartisan thing. And it it's, like, constitutionally mandated because of, or I guess it's not a constitution, but when Native Americans gave up mm. their land they the government promised free health care. And so now that's what it does. It provides free health care. But, but it, was it existed the before the ACA, didn't it? It did, but it had expired. I got so it. in 2010, they reauthorized it forever. And so now Native Americans and Democrats and Republicans with Native Americans in their district are worried that it's going to, you know, people associate the Affordable Care Act, repeal it all, and they're worried that they're, that's going to go away, too. Wow. It's 2.2 right. 2 million people. Yeah. I mean, I heard, again, I have heard any discussion right. about this at all. Uh, has, it, 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 has it come up? Is it being, you know, is it a, a, in the hearings? Are they talking about this? So Congressman Tom Cole from Oklahoma is one of two Native Americans in Congress. He's a big kind of champion for this. He's spoken about it. He had last Congress, I believe, introduced a uh, replacement bill that included keeping this. So he's making the rounds and talking about it. There's, you know, some Democrats, definitely Arizona, Tom Hollerin's working with the Native American caucus to try to get it out. It's bipartisan. It's just that if you don't have Native Americans in your state, you don't necessarily 
know about this or it's not a priority. Tom Cole has said, though, he told me that um, he thinks that he has enough people to stop to vote against the repeal if it doesn't include this. So it's definitely being discussed, but it's not really being discussed publicly or widely. The Parting Shot with Bill Press. This is The Bill Press Show. Well, give him credit for this. Donald Trump got one thing right. Yeah. Marco Rubio's nickname, Little Marco, that describes him best, exactly, perfectly, as Rubio proved once again yesterday. Remember, when Donald Trump named Exxon CEO Rex Tillerson to be our next Secretary of State, Rubio was the first Republican to stand up and say, no way, we don't need Vladimir Putin's best buddy as our Secretary of State said Rubio, and we don't want anybody who opposes the sanctions on Russia and will pressure Trump to lift them, thereby making Exxon $500 billion in one oil deal. And later, in his confirmation hearings, Rubio again grilled Tillerson and publicly announced he wasn't satisfied with his answers to a whole set of questions. And then little Marco gets pressure from Donald Trump, from the White House, and what happens? He folds, just like John McCain and Lindsey Graham did, and said he would vote for Tillerson anyway. Which means that after two dynamite secretaries of state, Hillary Clinton and John Kerry, we're going to get stuck with a man who has zero diplomatic experience and tons of conflicts of interest with Putin and other world leaders. Which is exactly what happened in the Republican primary. Remember? Little Marco and other Republicans made fun of Donald Trump. They complained about Donald Trump. But none of them were willing to stand up to Donald Trump and expose him for the phony that he is. And look who we got stuck with. This is The Bill Press Show.